Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. I am April Callahan, a fashion historian, and usually one half of the Dressed host duo with Cassidy Zachary, who just had her first baby, Leo. Congratulations. So she is momentarily out on maternity leave, which is why in the coming weeks, we will be re-airing a few of our favorite past episodes, which we are calling Dressed Classics. Today, we invite you to the hallowed realm of haute couture via an episode that we recorded in our very first season in 2018. So while some of the temporal markers that we might reference might be a smidge out of date, the sentiment and our deep respect for one of fashion's greats remains true. We hope you enjoy. So Cass, uh, the time has come once again when it's Fashion Week in Paris. Um, the very first episode of Dress that we did aired during Paris Fashion Week during February of 2018. But this Fashion Week, this one is extra special because it's not just Fashion Week in Paris, it's Haute Couture Week. Yay! <laughs> and this is a period for about four days when the elite of the elite will present their collections for both the envy and the scrutiny of the world. Yes, and we should make a point to note that Parisian Fashion Weeks and Haute Couture Weeks are two distinct events. They are purposefully held on different dates in order to emphasize the rarefied nature of the Haute Couture collections. So it's really extra special indeed, April, because a mere 14 officially sanctioned Haute Couture houses appear on the schedule for this week. However, they are joined by five foreign member houses and an additional 15 invited guests. In other words, fashion houses who have received a Fédération de la Haute Couture et de la Mode's official invitation to join the distinguished ranks of Haute Couture. Yeah, and once invited to join these invited guests, they have to um, wait out a four-year waiting period. But during this time, they can also show alongside of Haute Couture's legends, including Chanel, Christian Dior, Scaparelli, who relaunched in 2012, we did not mention this in our Scaparelli episode, and they actually regained their um, haute couture designation in 2017. Mm -hmm. And also the house that was once headed by Scaparelli's young protege. Who you might recall from our Scap episode broke her heart. Yes, but not in a romantic sort of way. Um, but it is the one and the same that we will discuss today. One of the last grandees of the golden age of couture and the man who's been given the moniker the gentleman couturier, Hubert de Givenchy. And as many dress listeners might be aware, Givenchy sadly passed away earlier this year on March 10th, 2018, at the age of 91. And despite the fact that he had not sat at the helm of his namesake company for more than 20 years, his death was felt very deeply in the international fashion community. Yeah, and I, for one, was quite sad that day, which, which also struck me as a little bit irrational. I mean... I had never met this man, um, but I have, in the course of my job as a curator, developed a sense of intimacy with his work just due to the vast number of sketches and photographs and all these other things um, relating to his work that we have in our collection. 
I don't think it's irrational at all. I think we all have this tendency to build intimate relationships with people we've never met, mainly because they just inspire and touch us so thoroughly. I, like you, have studied Givenchy's work for a long time. I think the very fact that his brand survives today speaks to this incredible influence and legacy that he has left us with. And Givenchy was one of the very few surviving couturiers from the 1950s, the golden age of haute couture. So his death really marks the end of an era. Agreed. I mean, when I first found out that he had passed away, I texted you immediately when I heard, and and you were like, wait, what? No. I know. So sad. And immediately we started plotting when to do our Givenchy episode, an in-memoriam tribute to the late great master, Ultimately, we decided that it might be nice to wait until Haute Couture Week as it was part of and continues to be part of the DNA of the Givenchy brand since the day he opened his doors in 1952. Yep. Hubert James Taffin de Givenchy was born in Beauvais, France in February of 1927. He was quite young, somewhere around the age of three or so, when his father, Lucien Taffin de Givenchy, passed away from the flu very tragically. And... One could argue, though, that the creativity could not help but course through Hubert's veins because his father had been an architect and his great-grandfather was a theatrical set designer who then later parlayed his career into being the head artist and director of the Severs Porcelain Factory. He then later went on to be the director of the Gobelin and Beauvais Tapestry Factories. And in a twist of fate on his mother's side, his great-grandfather and his grandfather were also involved in the Gobelin and Beauvais tapestry trade. His grandfather worked directly with Empress Eugenie to create custom pieces for the royal residences. Yeah, so it's very interesting because uh, his parents' families on both sides kind of had this professional kinship dating back all the way to the 19th century, really. Yes, and so it's perhaps not surprising that the young Givenchy's obsession with textiles began very young, at the age of four, and by seven, he was making dolls clothes for his cousins. But it was a visit to the fashion pavilion of the Exposition Internationale in Paris in 1937, when he was 10 years old, that Hubert first encountered the art of the haute couture industry when he came face-to-face with the work of his future boss, Madame Elsa Schiaparelli. On whom we have already done an episode, so you might want to check that out if you haven't. Cast, you already know she's one of my all-time <laughs> favorites. She is an arguably one of the best, and we will keep coming back to her time and again because of that. And we also discussed the origins of the haute couture industry in more detail in our very first episode on Charles Frederick Worth, for those of you who need a little more context about the high art of the haute couture. Yeah, so Givenchy completed his schooling at the age of 17, and after this, his mother insisted that he give up his notions of becoming a couturier. Instead, she encouraged him to pursue a practical profession, first placing him with a notary in the hopes that he might go into law. I thought this was really kind of bizarre and quite surprising, considering the family business. And needless to say, this prescribed venture did not take. In the words of Givenchy himself, I would have liked to have learned my métier at Monsieur Balenciaga's house, but it turned out otherwise. At the age of 17, I went to work for Jacques Fath, who gave me my chance. And you know what? This is not a bad shake. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) You know, he moved to Paris and pretty quickly landed a job at the age of 17 with Jacques Fath. And Foth may be lesser known today, um, but at the time, he was definitely one of the leading couturiers of the era. 
And honestly, by all accounts, the atmosphere at the House of Foth was probably the polar opposite of the silent and somewhat solemn manner in which Cristobal Balenciaga presided over his couture house. Um, Givenchy recounted, like, of his time at Foth, he says, quote, Entering Jacques Foth's fashion house was like stepping into a universe of danger and sensuality, wreathed in the most intoxicating perfume with an exciting yet frightening appeal. His fashion house was a haven of fun and fantasy and very much in vogue. I was very fortunate in meeting Foth. Without him, I never would have been able to get started in fashion, for it was almost impossible to get a job in couture in those days. You know, I'm just saying fun, frivolity, the fact that Foth even let Uber bring his radio into work and listen to it. This probably <laughs> was a better fit for the 17-year-old than, than a lawyer's office. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, a little levity at work is never a bad thing. And even more good news came when Uber's mother finally gave her his blessing on his career of choice. But, quote, never, never must you complain or change your mind, she told him. Yeah, she was like, okay, fine if you're doing this, but you're going to stick with it, mister. <laughs> But any concerns she might have had about her son's chosen profession were quickly put to rest because Givenchy proceeded to land one plum gig after the next. After a year with Jacques Faf and concurrently studying drawing at the École des Beaux-Arts, Givenchy left Faf to work for Robert Piquet in 1946. And this is also the year that he meets one Christian Dior. And Dior had not yet launched his own house yet, but he suggested that Givenchy might come join him at his current employer, Lucien Lelong. And, and Lelong, um, he had served as the head of the governing body of the haute couture industry during World War II. And I think that we might have mentioned his name in passing sometime previous on the show. We have, certainly. And Dior suggested uh, that Givenchy join Lelong and then come to work for me after I set up my own shop. So... Givenchy accepted, and off he goes to work for Lelong. Okay. I just want to take a side note and talk about something for a minute. Uh, this is now 1946. So this means that uh, Givenchy is 18, turning 19, and he's been in the trade for less than two years with little to no previous training. So why are all of these very prestigious job offers just kind of flying his way? It was kind of like the creme de la creme of the Parisian couture crowd were falling all over themselves <laughs> to give this kid a job. I have a little bit of a theory. <laughs> um, could it have something to do with the fact that Hubert de Givenchy was 6'5 or 6'6, depending on the source? And in the yeah. words of Vogue, handsomer than almost any movie star. Uh-huh. And not to discount Givenchy's genius, because we will establish by the end of this episode that he was a magnificently gifted couturier. But I think maybe there were some other interests at play. <laughs> but Jack's path was married. He was. His wife, Genevieve, was actually his greatest model and muse. But it's generally held that this was kind of a my wife, Bonnie situation. Is that a waiting for a Cuffman reference you just made? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Totally guilty. I'm a huge fan of all Christopher Guest movies. Me too. Uh, as I'm sure lots of our listeners are as well. So for any of you who might not have seen the movie Waiting for Guffman, first of all, you should watch it. Second of all, April is referencing the fact that one of the main characters is a stage director who is obviously gay, but all throughout the movie, he makes references to his wife, Bonnie, who somehow never materializes. Yeah. In other words... Foss' marriage is generally held to be a marriage of convenience. 
And uh, Mr. Dior, definitely known to enjoy the company of handsome younger gentlemen. Um, and it was just simply not uncommon at this time for gay designers to remain publicly closeted throughout their entire professional careers. But back to Givenchy. Yes, so he's at Le Long under Dior's recommendation, and Givenchy was flat out miserable. He once said, I stayed for six months, but it was a difficult atmosphere. So no radios at work here? (laughs) Guess not. But is this the part where I get to talk about Scaparelli more? Yes, you do. But only after we get back from a short sponsor break. Welcome back. Back to 1947, when a young 10-year-old boy's dream really did come true. A decade earlier, Givenchy had been enthralled with Scaparelli's design showcased at the 1937 Exposition Universelle. And now, she had become his boss and mentor. And certainly, Scaparelli was in need of an infusion of a bit of youthful talent. Because in her own memoirs, she stated that during the years of World War II, she was in the U.S. organizing charitable events, usually um, benefiting France, and she wasn't really paying attention to what was happening in fashion. In the words of Givenchy, in 1945, when she returned to Paris after the war, Scap had not kept up with fashion changes. She had remained steeped in surrealism. I, therefore, missed out on her truly creative period. Oh, that kind of hurts a little bit. I know. Ouch. <laughs> but perhaps he was just being forthright because he does also go on to say, I had never experienced anything like the atmosphere of elegance and refinement that prevailed during those four years with her. Yeah, and he, he stuck around with her um, quite a bit, especially given in light how, how much he had changed back and forth early in his career. Mm-hmm. And Scaparelli put him in charge of designing for her ready-to-wear batik. Well, she focused her attentions on the couture operations. So Givenchy is still in his very, very early 20s. This was quite a professional gift. And another gift of his time at Scaparelli were also the myriad of contacts that he made while in her employ. Um, Many of the most fashionable women in the world were her clients. And alas, it was not enough for Givenchy to remain an assistant, even if it was at one of the most beloved fashion houses in the world, and he decided it was finally time to strike out on his own, leaving Scaparelli in late 1951, and she was displeased, to say the least. Yeah. Um, I think you even said, perhaps, that she put a curse on him. (laughs) Is this just a rumor? We can't verify this. It's just a a rumor. With the financial backing of relatives, Givenchy would go on to open up his own house— in a somewhat unusual space, a little bit out of the way of the usual fashion scene in Paris. Um, And he did this in a somewhat quirky private residence that was a sort of mishmash of historic architectural styles. And they really offended Givenchy's personal taste. Um, So he took matters into his own hands and he put up screens and he put up draperies to hide all these little bits and pieces of the interior that he didn't particularly care for. And the end result has been very humorously described in the fashion magazine Marie Claire. They wrote about his brand new couture house. It was as though Dolly had been commissioned to decorate a Gothic chapel. (laughs) (laughs) And fashion journalists, um, the space was so distinctive that the fashion journalists nicknamed his salon La Cathedrale. (laughs) The success Givenchy had creating ready-to-wear at Scaparelli convinced him that the world was ready for a rather new concept, that of high-end separates. 
These separates could be mixed and matched and provided a new ease to dressing that was really not typical of this era. Yeah, we're definitely still in the era when many, many women were shopping for complete head-to-toe coordinated ensembles. Um, And doing separates, this was also a calculated business move on the part of Givenchy. Um, When the fashion house opened, it did not initially meet the requirements necessary for official designation as a couture house, nor was Givenchy even particularly interested in competing with his former employers. Instead, he wanted to deliver something fresh, something young, and something new. And he did just that. Shown off by Paris's top models, his first separates collection was overwhelmingly black and white, which only further underscored its modular nature. And the models that were um, modeling his garments included Susie Parker and Bettina Graziani, after which he named the lauded Bettina blouse, which was this crisp white shirt with these tiered sleeves composed of raw cotton shirting. And people loved this shirt. Yes. And we will put up an image of it on our Instagram. And Bettina was um, kind of played a big part in this initial success of the house because she was not only his model or mannequin, as we often say as well, she was also the publicity director for Givenchy. And given the fact that she was already one of the top models working in Paris at this time, um, you know, she knew all the players, um, you know, and you can understand how this might be beneficial to this young upstart business. Not that he struggled very hard. He really was a victim of his own success right off the bat. In fashion editor circles, his name was a hot topic. A blast from his first collection ended up on the cover of Elle. Vogue and Harper's Bazaar published illustrations of his designs, and Carmel Snow, the editor of Harper's Bazaar, gushed. His clothes are modern, fresh, sagacious. He knows exactly to the last ruffle how far to go. Word spread that he had set up his own salon so quickly that all of his inventory was promptly snapped up by elegant women from around the world. The first day the collection was available for sale, it brought in 7 million francs. That is a staggering sum of money for one day. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not even ingested for inflation. Um, The problem with this, though, was that the fledging fashion house simply did not have the capacity to keep up with this demand. And at this high level, doing ready-to-wear was a somewhat novel endeavor, and the supply chains and the staffing problems that Givenchy encountered forced him to realize that perhaps he'd just been a little bit too ahead of his time, um, <laughs> and that organizationally, uh, the, the Parisian fashion industry wasn't quite there yet. Um, you know, his version of these ready-to-wear separates um, was a new breed. And after this, Givenchy was forced to reconsider and ultimately had to switch his modus operandi to follow in the custom couture traditions that he had been initially trained. So now we are in 1953, which proved to be a huge year for Givenchy personally and professionally. He would meet two people who would greatly impact his life and remain lifelong friends. Yep. At long last, Givenchy finally had the occasion to meet his idol, Cristobal Balenciaga. And in a quirk of fate, it was not in Paris, but actually at a dinner party in New York City where they were both guests. This is, of course, the same Balenciaga that the 17-year-old Hubert had hoped would be his mentor. So once again, one of his wishes came true. And Balenciaga would prove to be a nurturing teacher. Both men shared a love of volume, shape, and simplicity. Both held matters of construction and reverent regard. 
both felt that the fabric dictated the final form. And when you compare their bodies of work, you can really see the influence that Balenciaga had over the young couturier's work. So they had this shared sense of discipline. Of Balenciaga, Givenchy said he, quote, taught me it isn't necessary to put a button where it doesn't belong or to add a flower to make a dress beautiful. It is beautiful of itself. It's a lovely quote. Mm -hmm. I think there was definitely mutual respect there. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had these shared points of aesthetic interest, but their voices really do remain unique. Um, One time, Givenchy finally shared with Balenciaga, now his mentor, that he was very frustrated that he wasn't able to train with him, you know, when he was 17 and 18, when he first entered fashion. And Balenciaga kind of brilliantly retorted back to him. He said, quote, there would have been no point. Your good taste is innate. And the hard part is just developing it. Basically, he was like, you wouldn't have been able to develop your own voice working under me. So that's quite the compliment coming from the master. There is this genuine appreciation and respect shared between the two of them. And Lenciaga even sent some of his best seamstresses to work for Givenchy. Yeah, I mean, this respect definitely flowed both ways in the case of this. You know, for the master to give up some of his own talented employees... He really, really must have believed in Givenchy and wanted him to succeed. And Givenchy did, thanks in no small part to another person he also met in 1953. And we will find out who that person is right after this sponsor break. Cass, I was going to suggest that maybe we play a little bit of a guessing game as to who this next influential person in Givenchy's career might be. But something tells me that many of our listeners might already be on to our trail (laughs) and they might already know who this person is. Yes, agreed. Because her name and public image are inextricably linked to the House of Givenchy and the popular imagination. The two are practically synonymous with one another. We are, of course, speaking about Audrey Hepburn, one of the biggest style icons of all time. And Givenchy was integral to crafting her image. And I love the charming story of how these two met Shall we? How can we not? (laughs) So the tale is told as such. Apparently, Monsieur de Givenchy was at the tail end of finishing a collection and incredibly busy. However, hearing that Miss Hepburn was here to see him, um, and I'm going to tell the rest of the story in his own words. He says, quote, I was a great fan of Catherine Hepburn at the time, and assuming that it was she who had come to visit me, I rushed forward to meet her. To my surprise, I saw Audrey tall and slender in gigam check trousers and a t-shirt. She explained that she wanted me to design all of her dresses for Sabrina. And this was difficult because I was right in the middle of preparing the collection, but I did show her several models, which seemed as though they had been made for her. Yes, yeah, so she apparently just like walked into all of his sample sizes. <laughs> <laughs> as one does. Yeah. <laughs> but this is where it starts to get a tad confusing. Because while Givenchy did design many of the celebrated costumes Audrey wore in the film, he was not the costume designer. That would be the legendary Hollywood costume designer Edith Head. And it was Edith, not Givenchy, who won an Oscar for her designs for the film. So this doesn't entirely seem exactly fair, does it? I mean, and arguably one of the stars of this film is Audrey's wardrobe. Yeah, and the facts surrounding this whole who gets credit for the costume things changes a bit, depending on who you ask. Um, If you asked Audrey, for instance, 
She would tell you that the most famous ensembles from this film were by Givenchy and her words, quote, that jazzy suit and that superb white organdy evening dress with black embroidery that I wore dancing in the winter garden. But if you ask Givenchy, he pretty much kept more or less silent on this topic for years. And if you ask Edith Head, well, she claimed that Givenchy had little to do with those now iconic looks in Sabrina. Yeah. According to the memoirs of Head's former protege, she told the story as such. Audrey gave her several sketches of Givenchy's designs, which Audrey herself had sketched while attending a Givenchy fashion show in Paris. After insisting to the director that this is what she wanted to wear in the film, Head was told to recreate the looks. And Head claims to have altered them to make them her own so that her team created the patterns and that they were made up in local materials at the Paramount Studios her former friend quotes had telling him, I never received a thing from Givenchy. Yet another Hollywood scandal. <laughs> we do have to remember that at this time, the studio system in Hollywood was all powerful. So Givenchy was still in his early 20s. And the chance to dress an ingenue actress who was actually on the precipice of superstardom, this was a huge opportunity for him. So it's kind of generally held that he held his tongue uh, about this credits for the designs for the film um, and, and in order to not buck the system. That said, Givenchy did finally comment on the subject years later, revealing Audrey was reportedly so furious at Edith for taking all the credit that she declared from then on, each time I am in a film, Givenchy dresses me. And so he did. He would actually dress Audrey on and off the screen for four decades. And one of my favorite moments from their early collaborations has to be the dress that she wore to the 1954 Academy Awards, where she accepted the Oscar for Best Actress for her breakout role in Roman Holiday. I love that movie. Yeah. And this dress is gorgeous. It's a gorgeous white lace number. Um, it has that same straight across neckline as the famous Sabrina dress, um, also known as a bateau neckline. Mm -hmm. And the dress fit her superbly. Um, the bodice was very tight. It hit at the natural waist and then a full circular skirt supported by lots and lots of petticoats um, that, you know, hit just below the knee. It was simple, elegant, and something we now recognize as classic Givenchy. So for those of you who have inquiring minds, there's actually a video on YouTube of Audrey accepting this Oscar so you can see the dress um, yourself in motion. Um, and I've, in the last few years, kind of found YouTube to be a surprising source for fashion. Oh, my gosh. Um, primary source fashion videos. Um, everything. You know, we're always <laughs> searching for film footage for us. is sometimes rare. So um, I've seen plenty of pictures of this dress in the past. But on a whim, I just checked YouTube for acceptance speech. And there was the dress, live in all of its glory. <laughs> Givenchy and Audrey Hepburn formed a legendary partnership. He would dress her in seven more films, including just to name a few, Funny Face, Charade, and of course, Breakfast at Tiffany's. You know, the film in which Audrey wore only one of the most iconic dresses in the history of film, or maybe ever. Holly Golightly's black sheath dress topped with that multi-layered strand of pearls. Audrey once remarked about Givenchy, he is far more than a couturier. He is a creator of personality. And he was incredibly integral in helping to mold the public images of one of the world's most beloved stars. And this was not only a professional partnership cast. Um, like you mentioned before, Audrey wore his clothes both on and off stage for decades. Mm -hmm. um, and of Hepburn, Givenchy has said 
that to him, she represented the ideal woman. And I think what's interesting about this relationship is we can find the beginnings of what today we would call a brand ambassador, Hmm. um, you know, a celebrity who is aligned with a particular brand. And and today this is typically a paid partnership. But in the case of Audrey and Hubert, there was a very real, very lifelong and loving friendship between the two of them. Yeah, their relationship is actually quite touching Above all, Audrey was my friend, Givenchy told Vogue in a 2010 interview, and I feel her presence every day. In an interview he gave to Susie Minquez shortly before he died, he revealed that despite no longer being an active part of the fashion industry, he continued to draw in memory of his dearly departed friend. Oh, that's sweet and sad. <laughs> but while Audrey is certainly Givenchy's most famous celebrity client, she was not alone in her admiration for his work. Wealthy women around the world came to him for elegant simplicity, clothes that relished perfect lines and perfect volumes. Aside from Audrey, some of Givenchy's most notable actress clients included Lauren Bacall, Marlene Dietrich, Greta Garbo, Sophia Loren, and Elizabeth Taylor. His client list also read like a veritable who's who of the social register. Jacqueline Kennedy, Princess Grace of Monaco, Jacqueline de Reeb, and Mona Bismarck. And Cass, did you know that when the Duke of Windsor passed away in 1972, he actually created a black overcoat for the Duchess of Windsor to wear overnight? I mean, that's no small feat when you consider how much hand craftsmanship goes into the making of haute couture garments. Yeah, no, not at all. So some of you may know the Duchess of Windsor as Wallace Simpson. She was certainly one of his best customers. And her husband once asked Givenchy point blank why his designs cost so much To which Wallace interjected and replied, Do you think the price is so high for all the joy and pleasure I give you with all the lovely dresses Hubert has designed for me? Apparently that shut him right up. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. Um, And while the best dressed women in the world draped themselves in um, Givenchy's couture designs, he had not yet given up his dream for a ready-to-wear line. In 1956, he finally had the capital to do this properly and the Givenchy Université Boutique line was born. And it was a line of dresses, coats, suits, and some separates. And the pieces retailed at the time for anywhere between $100 and $300, which would be about $1,000 to $2,800 today. Oh, my gosh. So no small price. But the market was finally ready for this. In the U.S. alone, approximately 30 department stores and boutiques all snatched up his ready-to-wear line. And in the midst of the 1960s youthquake revolution, when young British designers stole the spotlight from the Parisian haute couture for the first time in fashion history, Givenchy stayed relevant. He launched another ready-to-wear line in 1968, Givenchy Nouvelle Boutique, aimed at a more youthful market. And in 1969, he launched his ready-to-wear menswear line, Givenchy Gentleman. Quote, I am of tradition, but that doesn't mean I have an old outlook on life, he told Women's Wear Daily in 1978. You see a goddess, the image of that lady, he says, slowly raising his hands as if to frame the memory. You'd be thinking of a large private ballroom with her in it. And then he shrugged. Now you're more inspired by what you see on the street. Mm -hmm. And speaking of inspiration, um, in November of 1973, Hubert de Givenchy joined his fellow French designers Yves Saint Laurent, Emmanuel Angaro, Pierre Cardin, and Christian Dior for an epic fashion event that was held at the Palace of Versailles. Um, Now known um, colloquially as the Battle of Versailles, formerly the occasion was called 
the Grand Divertissement à Versailles. And it was a charity event um, organized to raise much-needed funds to restore the Palace of Versailles, which had fallen into a bit of disrepair at the time in the 1970s. And this evening was staged as a showcase presentation of the work of the five aforementioned French couturiers and also the American fashion designers Halston, Oscar de la Renta, Bill Blass, Stephen Burroughs, and Anne Klein. And we will not delve too much into the spectacle that ensued because we are saving that sumptuous affair for a future episode. But let's just say that the evening turned out revelatory for all, a fashion face-off that was never intended to be. And one of the things that was revelatory to the French contingent was the vivacious bevy of Black models working for the American designers. Um, The American designers, along with them, they had brought 36 models from the U.S., hired them to come to France, and 10 of them were Black. And while the Black modeling industry was certainly expanding in the 1970s, this nearly 30% ratio of Black to white models, this was unusually high for this type of high fashion runway event. And these women killed it. Pat Cleveland, Alva Chen, Bethann Hardison, Just to name a few, they swept in like a gust of fresh air. They stormed the stage with a youthful joie de vivre that comparatively rendered the measured posing of the French models immediately passé. And this must have been a tremendously impactful moment for Monsieur de Givenchy, because almost immediately after this event, you see his cabine. Um, I guess we should define that. Um, Cabine meaning, um, it's a term meaning in-house models, Mm -hmm. um, the models that go to the fashion house every day to work as employees showing off the clothes for clients. Perhaps they were also working as fit models. Um, But Givenchy, um, following Versailles, his cabine and his runways are suddenly almost overnight resplendent with models of color. Yeah, I recall reading once that in the 1980s, his entire cabine was a black model's. And if you look at his couture runway shows from the late 80s and early 90s, black, Asian and Indian models outnumber white models four to one. Yeah, and we are still having this dialogue today in the fashion industry. Um, So if he was doing this in the 80s, why are we still having to push so hard for diversity on the runway over 30 years later? I have no idea. I've literally stopped reading fashion magazines and watching some fashion shows. I mean, in fashion magazines, you have to flip 30 pages through the magazine before seeing anyone that's not a Caucasian male or female. I I don't need to be reading that magazine anymore. And if you look at recent runways, you still find designers sending almost exclusively white model collections down the runway. But I digress. Let's get back on track. Yes. Okay. Let's head back. Let's head back to 1982 when a retrospective of the first 30 years of Givenchy's work was mounted here in New York at what is now the Museum of the Fashion Institute of Technology. And another honor came his way in 1992 on the 40th anniversary of the House of Givenchy. A major retrospective was held in Paris at the Palais Galleria, which holds one of the world's most prestigious collections of fashion and textiles. Okay, 40 years, right? It was his 40-year retrospective. No matter how much you love something, I think that we can all agree that 40 years of doing the same job is a long time. Yes. Um, And in 1995, Hubert de Givenchy stepped down as the designer of his eponymous brand. But the founder's footsteps were big to fill, but they were filled by some of the names that our listeners will definitely be familiar with. Oh, without a doubt. His immediate successor was fashion's very own enfant terrible, Jean Galliano. 
So when Galliano departed for Dior two years later, Lee McQueen was tapped to head the house. Only four years out of school, McQueen was now balancing the lead position, and not only his brand Alexander McQueen, but also Givenchy. So McQueen parted ways with Givenchy in 2001 to turn his focus to expanding his own fashion house. Julian McDonald stepped in for a couple of years before Ricardo Tichy, who would reign for 12 straight years. So in other words, two of my all-time favorite designers worked as Givenchy, McQueen and Tichy. Both of their work as Givenchy, while incredibly different, was pure magic. And it's really interesting because Givenchy, this pillar of sophistication and glamour for 40 years, after Hubert left his company, the brand turns into this breeding ground for young avant-garde designers. And the latest of which we should definitely discuss, Claire Waite Keller. Um, She is the first female designer to head the label. And some of you might already be familiar with her name as the designer of Meghan Markle's recent wedding gown. Yeah, Kate Strasden and I had the pleasure of discussing Meghan's wedding dress in our recent Queen Alexandra episode. But I am very curious on your thoughts, April, because I happen to know that your partner works as Givenchy. So what was the discussion between the two of you when you saw Meghan's dress? Well, we actually talked about it over the phone because I was out of town um, and he personally thought that the dress was extremely elegant, mm-hmm. but he was curious about my take on it because many of his coworkers felt that it was too plain. Um, but I thought it embodied the spirit of Givenchy through and through. Um, you know, the heritage of the house was in there with the simple but exquisite lines and very precise fit. That bateau or straight across mm-hmm. neckline was one of Givenchy's signatures. And I would even venture to put forth that in some ways, you can almost see a little bit of the DNA of Cristobal Balenciaga in that dress as well. You know, he had a profound influence over Givenchy in terms of construction and restraint. And I really think that Claire got all of this and that she nailed it, that the dress was sublime. Yeah, I especially love that Claire was able to meet Givenchy the year prior to his death where he shared with her his love of fashion, but also his fashion story, where he came from, and what a life to have lived. I I can't imagine it is easy to see all of these different designers work under your name all these years, but he's always done it with grace and composure, and he's met with several of them to offer them advice and insight. So I really think Claire designed a beautiful, elegant dress, effortless, simple, and stunning. A memorable wedding dress for Megan, yes, but also an homage to the incomparable Hubert de Givenchy. And just a small update, dress listeners. When we recorded this episode in 2018, Claire Waite Keller was at the helm of the legendary house of Givenchy, but her tenure ended in April of 2020. And in June of the same year, Matthew M. Williams, an American, was tapped as her successor and is currently serving as the house's creative director. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the nature of legacy in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com or you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is of course where we post images accompanying each week's episodes. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that helps make the show possible each and every week. More Dressed coming your way on Tuesday. Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.